Welcome into the Galloway Podcast, episode 49. Today is Tuesday, August 25th, 2020. And if you'll notice, we're doing more episodes more frequently as school has started here at the University of Alabama. I've got a little bit different show for you today. We're not going to go through what's new. We're not going to go around Alabama athletics, but we do have an interview with Dr. Stephen Russell. Uh, We will bring him in in a moment, but uh, this episode 49 is the COVID Chronicles, and I feel like I did a pretty good job of covering it up to most people, but I have endured and conquered coronavirus, fortunately, Uh, back to feeling better now, now back at the University of Alabama. I've done my 10 days in quarantine since first showing symptoms, and today I'm talking with Dr. Stephen Russell, who works at UAB in Birmingham. And uh, we're going to go through COVID. We're going to go through my symptoms. We're going to talk about the personal side for me and also the medical side from his perspective and kind of give you a, um, a two-sided view of, of kind of what happened and a little bit more information about this virus, speaking from both a personal and medical perspective. So now it is my honor to welcome in a pediatrician and internist at UAB since 2007. He's authored multiple books. He's a Vandy grad. He attended med school at South Alabama, completed his residency at the University of Cincinnati, which unfortunately uh, he became a Bengals fan ever since. Dr. Stephen Russell. Dr. Russell, how are you? Hey, William. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's great to be on your podcast. I very much appreciate the invite. Absolutely. Well, you are somebody that I've gone to uh, for a long time now for, for medical advice and also uh, just talking uh, in general. But of course, with this, I figured what better candidate uh, than you to talk about the coronavirus. I know you've, you've done uh, many media appearances throughout your career, and more recently kind of been a little bit of a spokesman, um, sometimes on behalf of UAB. So I'm excited to talk to you a little bit today about coronavirus. First question uh, right off the bat is yesterday, the city of Tuscaloosa and Mayor Walt Maddox shut down bars for 14 days. I want to ask you, before we get into you know my experience with coronavirus and the personal versus medical side of it, what was your, uh, your doctoral takeaway from uh, a city like Tuscaloosa shutting down bars, um, places that generate so much business for not only this city, but its residents as well? Well, I saw that. I was eating lunch yesterday when uh, when the notice came through on my phone that bars in Tuscaloosa were going to be shut down. And my first thought is that life might look a little different for some of the students and uh, perhaps even some of the faculty at Tuscaloosa over the next couple of weeks while those bars were shut down. But my second thought was that's probably a really good idea from a couple of different standpoints. I think certainly from a public health standpoint, We've known for the last several months that if we can ask people to separate themselves, even a minimum of six feet, that's going to be helpful. And, of course, your experience perhaps, and certainly mine in years past, has been that when you gather a group of people together in an indoor setting like a bar or even a crowded restaurant, it's going to be difficult to uh, maintain that six feet separation. And the second part of that, which I imagine we'll get to a little bit later on in the podcast, is um, the other main public health recommendation besides washing hands, which we've known about since kindergarten, is that um, wearing a mask is the best way for you and me to protect other people from anything that we might bring into that bar or restaurant. And uh, that's just not necessarily an environment where most people are going to do that. So it seems to me that that's very consistent with what the governor had put into place back in the middle of July when she asked everyone to wear a mask in a public setting and what we've been working on for the last uh, several months with with social distancing. And so I think it's the right move. 
and it's probably the best move to make sure that Alabama football and Alabama sports can can go on later on this fall. Right, just a month over, uh, right at a month tomorrow will be uh, kickoff as Alabama will travel up to Missouri, so we're fired up about that. And, you know, a month, obviously two weeks, shutting down for two weeks will uh, not inhibit the football season, so hopefully this can be a measure that the city and the university take together to uh, keep its students safe. But a number that was released yesterday, and and we can get into the, the, I have a little bit of frustration with it, but not releasing that number until yesterday. Yesterday, from the start of school until yesterday on Monday, August 24th, there were 531 positive cases reported to the UA system from the University of Alabama students, uh, and that includes faculty and staff as well in that 531 number. And I am one of those. And, and before I ask you this question of how concerning is it that in five to six days there are over 500 cases, I, I want to say coronavirus, as you know, and as, as I've experienced, is, is serious. Uh, and I'm fortunate that I'm a, a healthy 21-year-old, and uh, the hardest part for me was was the quarantine. And the second hardest part, uh, and we'll get into the symptoms later, but was, and Dr. Russell, you've, I'm sure you've had a new toothbrush recently, especially with COVID going on, I'm sure. That's right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so I went home and I got a new toothbrush because I had been living in my room and I figured I needed, you know, a new environment, new toothbrush, stay safe. Right. Well, the toothbrush hurt my gums because I have sensitive gums and I really hope my dentist is not listening to this. Shout out to Dr. Alexander. The toothbrush hurt my gums because I have, I have sensitive gums and I hadn't been flossing. I'm sorry, Dr. Alexander, but again, I hope you're not listening. Um, the toothbrush hurt my gums more than any other symptom. And that's because I'm, I'm healthy. And, and for me, my COVID experience was not too bad. It, it was the bleeding of the gums and brushing my teeth twice a day hurt more than any headache I had, any stomach ache I had, um, any, any pain, you know, that I had body aches or anything. It was, and, and obviously that that's completely unrelated. So, so how much of a concern, and we'll get to the numbers shortly, but how much of a concern Dr. Russell is COVID um, for people my age? Because for me, the hardest part was being isolated and brushing my teeth. Well, well you make up a great point. You know, anytime somebody's in a new relationship, you get to know the other person or the other thing in that relationship over time. And that's what we're learning about COVID. You know, if you put this in bigger context, it was New Year's Eve, 19, excuse me, 2019, when we first, as a medical community, learned about COVID, and really in the United States, we started paying attention to it in January. So in that relatively short period of time, just nine months, we have learned a lot about what COVID can do, first focusing on the elderly, focusing on those at risk, perhaps with type 2 diabetes or other conditions. But as more people have been infected, right now the number is well over 5 million in the United States. And as more people have unfortunately succumb to this disease, um, we've realized that there is a pattern, but there's a lot of stuff that falls outside of that pattern. You talk about your teeth uh, hurting. You talk about your gums bleeding. And and we have seen this. We've seen people who just ache. They hurt, kind of like they have the flu, but it's much more than that. So, yes, the symptoms are new and different, even as we're getting to learn about this relationship, as it were, that we have with COVID. But to your specific question, we are part of one big community. We're part of one big family. You are part of the family of the University of Alabama. And yet your family extends beyond that for those at home, 
for your grandparents, for perhaps cousins, nephews, uh, or cousins, nieces, those kinds of things. And, you know, one of the things to know is that it's a concern not just for you, but for anybody that you saw a couple of days before you were having your first symptoms, anybody that you may have seen, and I hear you to say that you were very good about the quarantine, but that may have come in contact with you after those symptoms began. And so when we think about our family relationships and those that we care about, that's the sneaky thing about COVID, is in this relationship, COVID is very good about sharing itself with other people. It's very good about getting outside of the immediate relationships that we have. And if we're not super careful with that distancing we talked about, with that masking we talked about, and with that diligent hand washing that we've known about for so many years, then it is likely to spread. And it's those unintended consequences with a grandmother, with a parent, or with someone perhaps who's your own age that may be at risk for their own medical reasons, we're likely to see some really unfortunate and unintended consequences. Right. And so, you know, with those consequences, obviously it spread kind of like wildfire. Uh, it, was, it made, you know, Fox News, CNN, that there were over 500 cases in just over five days. How concerning is that in the medical community uh, that it spread relatively so rapidly at the University of Alabama? Well, I think it's concerning. I think if we look at the numbers in Alabama, a state, and we compare those numbers to what's going on around the rest of the country, we know that we're still in the red zone. And that's not just because you're in Alabama. We're in the red zone because the South is still experiencing a tremendous amount of cases of coronavirus. So let me just give you a little bit of context. This, so this, this is the bad red zone for all our, all our sports is, listeners. Right. This is the bad red zone. This is not the one where you want your numbers to be high because <laughs> that, that indicates that you're going to be going into the postseason. So let's think about February and March. We all knew about the terrible things that were going on in New York and New Jersey. And when we look at their numbers today, they're a model of where we want to be as a state and as a community because New York has really put in the hard work. They've done the hard efforts to really get those cases down. And right now there's very few transmissions of coronavirus in New York and New Jersey, those places that were making headlines back then. Right now, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Mississippi, essentially the Southeastern, Southeastern Conference is experiencing those same high levels. And what we want to do is we want to make sure that our hospitals and those that are providing the oxygen, those that, if they're needed, providing the ventilators, have room for the number of people that need those. And yes, we think about grandparents that are going to need those, but right now, William, at the uh, University of Alabama at UAB, there are people who are in their 20s, their 30s. At Children's Hospital, there are young children who are needing those same resources of oxygen and even ventilators. And so we want to be able to offer those. And the best way to do that is to tamp down on the spread of the disease so that we can keep those people protected when they need it. Fortunately, I was not one of those that needed to go in and see a doctor um, or even, you know, consult over telemedicine. Uh, I know I called you just for some advice uh, and, and talking about what what to do in certain situations. How can I safely return to campus, which fortunately I'm now back on campus. Um, but let's 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 go back because you know i i'm one of those who the the hardest part for me was was having bloody gums when i brushed my teeth which is kind of funny when you think about it and it wasn't the headache it wasn't the stomach ache it wasn't the sore throat um let's let's talk about the personal side of symptoms versus the medical side so i'll i'll just go through and say i tested positive on a tuesday the tuesday before class started 
And my symptoms I had felt started on Sunday night with a stomach ache. And I had an interesting series of symptoms. We'll go through them here real quickly. Sunday night, it was a stomach ache. I woke up Monday morning. The stomach ache was gone, but I had a sore throat. I woke up on Tuesday. The sore throat was gone, but I had a cough. I woke up on Wednesday, and at this point, Tuesday, I tested positive and went back home. Wednesday, I had a throbbing headache all day. It felt like needles were in my head, and then that was gone by the time I woke up on Thursday, and now it's Tuesday afternoon, and I haven't felt the symptoms since having a headache on Wednesday. So what can you tell me medically about some of those symptoms and why they may only have stayed with me for three or four days at my age? had mild disease and so when we think about this in context we think that about eight out of ten people who get coronavirus have mild disease and that's a really you know that's a really good and comfortable place to be in but again i want to go back to that five and a half million number which is the number of americans right now who have either lived with or experienced covid symptoms based on a positive test and there's lots of information to suggest that that number is likely higher we just weren't able to document their their cases. So now you say, okay, well, what about those other two out of 10 people? What about those other 20%? Well, those are the more severe disease. Those are the people that go into UAB or they go to Emory or they go to some of the other fine hospitals around the Southeast and of course around the country. And when we think about those people, it's a pretty large number when you start to multiply that out by the five and a half million folks who've been affected. And so your symptoms are very typical. They're typical for really any kind of a viral infection that somebody would have, the muscle aches, the headaches, the discomfort, in your case, within the gums. But the challenge, William, is if you were telling me that, hey, I had the flu, we could tell you with a pretty high degree of certainty because we've been thinking about the flu for over 100 years about what to expect and what to tell people and maybe even perhaps what to take in order to get better from the flu. The challenge of this relationship, as we kind of characterized it earlier with coronavirus, is we're still learning about it, and it's still giving us new things to think about. It's presenting itself in new ways. And so because of that, we don't really have a clear understanding, and occasionally we get a curveball. We get somebody who's a young dad with three kids that may end up in the ICU because he needs oxygen just to breathe comfortably, right? That's not what we typically expect with the flu or really most any other viruses that we that we think about. And of course, other cases can go on that we could talk about. So your symptoms would be considered mild disease and we're happy for that. And we would expect you to fully recover from that. But we don't want to take any of that for granted, especially because if that happens to be spread and people say, ah, oh, it's just mild disease for me, well, perhaps that one person that gets spread to because somebody had mild disease, it's going to be much more serious for them. Right. And I want to ask you now about testing. Um, and I'll, I'll share a quick anecdote here. I went to, and we can get into this later, there's been a lot of kind of mistrust and misinformation um, dispersed around from the UA system that came out with their 531 at the University of Alabama um, yesterday, their, their number, uh, but there'd been a lot of speculation, untrue media reports and things like that. People, you know, one people, one person saying something and plenty of other people saying another thing. Uh, but a lot of this medically comes down to testing. So I'll say this. I went to Coleman Coliseum at the University of Alabama and this was on Tuesday and they wouldn't test me because I was symptomatic and had been exposed. Knowingly, I'm, I admitted to them, yes, I'm, I have a sore throat. Um, 
I need to get tested. I, I live around people that have tested positive and they wouldn't test me at Coleman Coliseum. They were doing re-entry testing, trying to get as many students with negative results to come back. And I understand they need negative students so they can have their students back. Um, but they were doing rapid testing there. And so they sent me to the student health center and at the student health center, they did a quick rapid test, shoved the thing up my nose. Uh, I, I, of course I screamed cause it hurt, <laughs> but, um, they shoved the thing up my nose 15 seconds, 15 quick seconds at that. And, uh, within 45 minutes, my results had been posted to my, my, my Bama student health tab or whatever. Um, but with that testing, like that number, since it was on Tuesday, was not one of the 531 reported from the University of Alabama because it started, those numbers started the next day. So I want to ask you, what, what is the efficiency of a rapid test versus one of those, I guess, more, I don't want to say honest, but more detailed tests where you get, you know, a two to four day result? Right. Yes. There's different ways for us to be able to determine if somebody has coronavirus. And I think, and of course, when we say coronavirus, we're talking about COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2. You're going to hear different things written, depending on if you're reading it in the, the newspaper or a magazine online or in a medical journal. But we're all talking about the same thing right now, of course. And so the standard test, the test that first came out, is a, is a long Q-tip that gets pushed in the back of your nose, turned around for about five seconds, and then gets sent off for the lab, and it gets put in such a such a way that you can actually determine the signature of the virus. It's this absolutely specific. It's like a fingerprint. And if you see it, if you find that, and it takes sometimes a day to come back, if you're in the hospital, maybe a little bit quicker, and if you're in the outpatient setting, sometimes a little bit longer, but if you see that, you know, again, it's like your fingerprint or your own signature. It's, it's the thing to see, and, and when you have this much disease, we don't really spend a lot of time thinking, well, I wonder if it's not really the signature I'm looking at. I wonder if it's a false positive test. That's just not really a, if you're getting the test done, it's just not really a credible or fair question to ask if it's not positive. But I think the other question that you're asking is, what about, you know, these other tests? What about these rapid tests? And so I think the bigger issue, both from a personal standpoint, when you go in to be tested, and from kind of a public health standpoint, is what if it comes back negative, right? What if you have the sore throat that you talked about, the fever, you're around the person who, who had a known positive test, and yours comes back negative? Well, you know, if it's wearing a red and white jersey, and if it's, uh, if it's playing the Alabama theme song, you're not going to suspect this a Mississippi State fan, right? So you have to be really suspicious that if going into this, you are worried about coronavirus, then your test is going to help you maybe contextualize that, maybe put it in context and say, yeah, this is exactly what it is. But we want to be really cautious about those negative tests because we want to ask why we got the test to begin with if we're having the symptoms and thinking about it. Now, the other thing that you brought up was those students who are coming back onto campus and we're testing a lot of folks to make sure that we can be comfortable that they are actually without symptoms. And I think that's a reasonable strategy when you have a, a large group of people. But again, we don't want to be so comfortable with those negative test results that we throw caution to the wind and we say, well, let's just take our mask off here or let's let's go to the bar there. I think that we still have this public health measure especially in a state that's having a lot of cases right now, to socially distance, to wear those masks, and to wash our hands, so that until we start to look like New York and New Jersey uh, with low cases, we can at least be comfortable saying we're doing our part to make sure that we don't spread it to other people. 
Yes. Okay. So the University of Alabama, as you know, as as I know, as everyone listening knows, really cares about athletics. Very, very much so. Specifically football. And and I want to share this little anecdote as well. I've a lot of stories to tell. And if I don't, uh, you know, cover. If you're listening around, I don't cover one of your questions. Please tweet at me, DM me. I'd, I'd be happy to share any of my experience. But this this stands out the most to me, Dr. Russell. And I've told you this. Um, but I received a call from the COVID hotline after calling them three times and leaving a message and saying, and tweeting at the UA students saying, I need to report a case, um, trying to be as, as private about it as possible. But they, they called me back and they said, first question, mind you, very, very first question to me. Um, you know, they go through the information, William Galloway, yeah, positive. Okay. First question off the bat, are you affiliated with athletics? And they proceeded to ask me if I was safe, if I had enough food, if I was at home, if I was taken care of. But their first question was, are you affiliated with athletics? And I just thought that was bizarre. And so they care about that. We know, you know, universities operate on a huge budget and money is extremely important. But what is that taking taking that story in from your perspective and, and knowing public health risk, like you just talked about, how do you compare public health risk versus a university seeking money? Yeah, so I mean, that's kind of the million dollar question. And earlier this summer, you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who I think is probably one of the most knowledgeable, if not the most knowledgeable person on both the data right now, as well as the up-to-date information about how we both test, treat, and combat coronavirus, was asked a real similar question when it came to baseball. And as you know, professional baseball has made a good effort to try and open up the season. They've done so, but they've seen lots of cases. And really the only sports example that we can point to so far of, uh, of a successful opening has been the NBA. But, of course, the cost that they have for that is to put everybody in a bubble. They've had to essentially close down the outside world exposure. And I'm not going to lie. I have absolutely loved watching NBA basketball. That's not my preferred sport, but just that hunger for having sports, for watching something, for being entertained in that way is palpable and it's real and it's, you know, I'm experiencing it and I know college students at both the University of Alabama and other places, as well as older fans like myself, would like to see that. But the question is, how can we do it safely? How can we make sure that we are, are able to do this in a way that is both watching out for our athletes, making sure that their health is protected, and also watching out for the fans that are going to be enjoying it. And I don't know that there's one answer for that. You've already seen, and I know in your earlier podcast from uh, last week and before, we've already talked about, or I've heard you talking about how some of the college football conferences have saying, you know, not us, we're not able to do that this year, not able to do it in a safe way. And I think one of the ironies that your last guest on your most recent podcast brought up was that the commissioner of one of the conferences, and we won't get into the specifics, I won't get into the specifics, (laughs) actually has a a son who won't be, who will be playing in the SEC, and yet the commissioner for whom he is responsible, uh, those players will not be playing. So it's a really mixed bag of of how do we protect public health and how do we, uh, you know, make sure that we can make life go on as much in a normal way as possible. I can tell you my area of understanding and knowledge, I hesitate to say expertise, is 
the public health realm, or at least as it, as it shows up in the clinic and perhaps in the hospital. And so we know that if people are going to attend the game, they need to be wearing masks. There's just no two ways about it. Is it out because it's outdoors? Is it safer? Yes, absolutely. I mean, arena football, there's no time for that right now. So the fact that it's outdoors is helpful, but we still need to be wearing a mask because when you're yelling for your team to score a touchdown, you're going to be much more likely to be spreading coronavirus than when you're whispering something indoors to somebody that you love. So that's important to wear the mask, right? It's also important to socially distance, and that's just not something that we're accustomed to in a college football setting. You're going to turn around and high-five the person behind you because you're so excited about what's happened. And yet in this environment, we shouldn't be doing that. And if you do, you should wash your hands, right? So, I mean, this is not a setup that's really going to be easily enforced. And yet it doesn't change the science as we know it and as we understand it about how do we keep each other safe. And, of course, I want to go back to what we said at the very beginning of the podcast, which is this is not about you and me, William. It's about what we do to keep other people safe. Um, And we really want to keep that in mind. And I think, again, I hate to – you know, I'm not a New Yorker. I have no affiliations with New York. But if we want to look at somebody who's done it right, if we want to look at places that have been successful – we can look at other areas around the country that did go through outbreaks and came through them successfully and hope as they go into the fall, they'll continue to be successful with their control. And we can look at the Northeast. We can look at the Pacific Northwest and see some areas of success. And hopefully we can follow their model as well. One thing I can take away, and I'd messaged uh, Alabama head athletic trainer Jeff Allen to last week after I tested positive, and, you know, I wasn't going to go around and tell everybody that I tested positive, but feeling the symptoms and going through the way, like my experience from testing at the University of Alabama and hearing how Alabama football tests their players, you know, twice a week. And if they're exposed or positive, they need two negative tests to come back. I told him just from like hours at this point of experience and the way, you know, the way that the university's dealt with things versus the way that football is, is treating their athletes and stuff like that. These guys, these college football guys, and I understand not every place is Alabama. Not everything has what Alabama has for its athletes. But from my experience, those football players in the SEC and the other Power Five conferences and probably most schools around the country are better taken care of in person, at school, on campus, around their teammates, around their coaches, in their meetings, in their practices. Now, what they do in their own time is 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 up to them. And we've heard Nick Saban, you know, they had the Surgeon General, and he talked about who you let in your bubble is who you let in the team's bubble um, and, and things like that. But it's been interesting to have now have that personal comparison and that personal experience. And once again, I'm not going to cover every aspect of, of my quarantine and what it was like, and I, I'm happy to answer any of those questions, but the questions are for you here. And so I move on to the next one. Um, the CDC, and this is obviously very new and very recent, the CDC is no longer recommending asymptomatic testing. What can you say about asymptomatic testing uh, and why the CDC is coming out with this new guideline? Right. So when we think about people who are uh, sick with, with COVID-19, uh, we've gone through your symptoms. We've gone through some of the more severe symptoms that can land people in the hospital. So the question comes up about, well, what about those people who have zero symptoms? You know, what about the asymptomatic spread of folks? And I think if we break that group into two separate categories, and this gets to uh, the CDC's recommendations, I think if we break that group into two separate categories, those who are truly without symptoms, I feel great, I have no problems, and two weeks from now I still feel great, and yet I had COVID, 
that's a really small population of people. What's much more likely is people who say, I feel great now, and two weeks from now I look back and say, you know, I did have a headache on Wednesday, and perhaps I had a little bit of a runny nose, but I just chalked it up to a summer cold. And I think the lesson there is that the symptoms can be extremely mild. But when you're in the midst of a pandemic, it's not a good idea to blow off symptoms to something else if you're worried about spread, if you're worried about what your symptoms represent. So I think what the CDC is getting at here in their recommendations is if you are around somebody, perhaps a brother, mother, father, and they have had zero symptoms, then there's not likely uh, much of a need for them to test if you guys followed all of those recommendations, wearing the mask, washing the hands, keeping yourself separated. Now, there are some small exceptions to that if someone's caring for an elderly loved one who's in a nursing home that has cancer. Okay, something small like that, we may want to make some exceptions, but the CDC is trying to make some really large, broad-picture recommendations, which is appropriate and evidence-based, and rich, which is really their mandate. And so we have a limited testing capacity. We would love to be able to say that we have 300 million tests just waiting for you. We just don't. That's not where we are as a country right now. And so until we get there, I think it's appropriate and wise to say, we, if you have symptoms, let's, let's go ahead and look at you and get you figured out. But if you're just worried about your health, then let's get you into the public health realm of keeping yourself safe. Let's monitor very vigilantly for symptoms, see what you have, but we don't need to use one of those tests if those tests may be better used for someone who's getting ready to go have surgery and we need to confirm that they don't have it or for a frontline healthcare worker or a teacher who may have been exposed. We want to really save those resources for the people at the highest need right now. And I think that's what the CDC was getting at when they were making their recommendation about asymptomatic testing. And so the last question here, kind of tying into those who need it, when you look at the progress of a vaccine, and I'm sure UAB, you've mentioned UAB, Emory, of course you work at UAB, uh, but kind of leading the, the front line there nationally with, with contributing towards a possible vaccine, but from your medical experience, what can you say about those, um, about a possible vaccine? And then as you talked about with the testing, who would get it first? Uh, and maybe how soon we can see a vaccine. Yeah, those are great questions. So what we know right now is that there's several vaccines that are undergoing what are considered phase three testing. So what those vaccines have already, the hurdle they've already crossed is that in a test tube or perhaps an animal and certainly in a healthy human model, those vaccines have already said these work and we know that they work because if you take somebody who's had COVID-19 and you draw their antibodies to say, yep, they've had it, they can protect themselves from a future infection. And then you give the, those people the same vaccine or somebody similar, rather, the same vaccine that we're testing. You can say, hey, they've got similar, similar antibodies to someone who's previously had a vaccine. That's those early testing. But those are healthy volunteers. Those are people who are not going to be perhaps working in the hospital or people who are not going to be exposed. So what we're seeing now is several different candidate vaccines are undergoing what are called the phase three vaccines. And so we're looking at testing thousands, tens of thousands of people. I think the numbers that I've heard are around 30,000 people in high risk areas are being tested right now. So they're given the vaccine. They're being exposed to communities like in the Southeastern Conference where there's a lot of spread going on. 
but some of those people are actually given sugar water, essentially. They're given saline, and of course they're going into this knowledgeably. They're volunteering to the vaccine trials. And then they're looking at those people. They're drawing their their uh, antibody levels to see, for those who got the vaccine, did they make a response? And when all of the people are looking at it, both those who got the saline or the placebo, as well as those who, who got the actual vaccine, were they protective? Was it effective? Did it reduce the chance that they were going to get COVID? And you need really large numbers in order to be able to determine that. Well, so a, a, a place they could get large numbers is certainly the University of Alabama. Over 30,000 students. I, I know a bunch of people who would volunteer. Well, things things are shut down for two weeks. You might as well bring it here. And... Right. You know, I mean, that's a, that's a great point, though, because you don't want to just do this in 45-year-olds. This needs to be in the elderly, those over 65. This needs to be in college students. This needs to be in parents of young children. It needs to be in teachers. These needs to be in people who are out there, who are exposed, who are going to be living their lives in areas where coronavirus is. And so what needs to happen then is those vaccines need to come, vaccine trials need to come to completion. And the reason is, is because these are designed in such a way to say, yes, they work. And if they work, here's how they work. And that just takes time. Now, to be fair, we are accelerating this process. I say we as if I'm a part of the process. I'm not a part of the process. I'm a consumer of the information that comes in. And perhaps I'm a knowledgeable consumer because of my background and training, but UAB is a part of the process, and they're actually helping to to run some of these clinical trials. But these trials take some time, so it's reasonable to expect that by the end of 2020, you will have some phase three trial data that will say, okay, of these candidate vaccines that we're looking at, they've met the mark. What's the mark? Well, we want more than half the people who got the vaccine to have a good and beneficial response. And if that's proven, and those are those are benchmarks that have been set by the FDA, set by those that run the trials, if we can say over half the people that got it had that good beneficial response, then we've got a worthwhile vaccine. And so to your question, when will people be able to get it? Practically speaking, not till 2021. Let's say that on this particular date, maybe December 1st, I'm making that up. I have no prior knowledge of that. But let's say December 1st, that vaccine came through and they said, we got the data in our hands. We're ready for it. Well, we still, all of these vaccines are likely going to take two doses. Each of these vaccines then has to be manufactured, and they're working on that. Mass produced, but not only mass produced, they have to be out there. They have to be given to, you know, your pharmacy in Tuscaloosa or your doctor's office in Birmingham or wherever that is. And that takes time. It's just not something that happens at the drop of a hat. So practically speaking, by spring break 2021, we'd love to see that vaccines are out and available for people. I'd also love to be proven wrong and see that it's sooner than that. But the knowledgeable people that I'm hearing that include those that are, are, are household names uh, in the scientific training, sort of in the, in the professional and public eye right now, indicate that it's probably going to be early 2021 before folks are starting to receive these approved vaccines. Early 2021, you say spring break 2021. I've already made plans to chase Alabama all across the country, hopefully in, in search of a Final Four berth. I love that. That is uh, that is that's my long term plan. So hopefully, uh, hopefully all of this will come to fruition. Well, Dr. Russell, thank you so much for making time today uh, to come in and inform and educate, and also kind of walk beside me and sharing my my COVID experience from my personal perspective, but also giving your medical side. So hopefully the listeners can uh, have a little bit, a lot better of an understanding. Well, Will, it has been my pleasure. I have taken 
picking up lots of new podcasts during the pandemic, yours being one of them. And I, I tell you, I learn something every week about what's new in Alabama football and what's new in the world of sports. And so keep them coming. I'm looking forward to episode number 50 and beyond. So thank you so much for having me on. It's been quite an honor. That's Dr. Stephen Russell on the Galloway Podcast, episode 49. Dr. Stephen Russell works at UAB in Birmingham as a pediatrician and internist and has been there since 2007. As we mentioned when we brought him in, he has unfortunately been a Bengals fan since uh, completing his residency at the University of Cincinnati. But big thanks to Dr. Russell for a great conversation there. And, um, you know, this isn't this whole podcast. I never try and make it so much about oh, you look at me and this, that, and the other, and I'm not doing that with COVID either. I'm not talking about, I'm not going to sit here and walk you through the details of what I had. But if you're interested about what the experience is like and um, symptoms, et cetera, Give me a DM. Uh, I'm happy to to talk with anybody about my experience. For like he said, I was one of the fortunate ones and got over it and uh, and, and felt symptoms, stopped feeling symptoms within a week and was better uh, by that 10 day mark. And so, uh, fortunately for me, I am I'm, I've turned the corner and I am on to uh, starting my senior year at the University of Alabama. Like I said, if you want to know any more information uh, about symptoms, about the experience, about uh, how the University of Alabama is handling things, feel free to DM me on Twitter. Send me a message at WM underscore Galloway. I'm happy to talk and pick up the phone at any time um, and would love to hear from anybody who has questions regarding that. Once again, thanks to Dr. Russell. want to remind everybody that Galloway Podcast merchandise is available. Comfort Colors t-shirts, white Comfort color shirts with a pocket and the black logo on that pocket. We've got tumblers, coffee mugs, golf towels, game day stickers, all for sale. The Galloway Podcast merchandise uh, is abounding and and I've seen it all across the country and I've seen it in different parts of the world too. So I want to thank everybody for their support and purchasing of Galloway Podcast merchandise. Thanks again to Dr. Russell for his time and thank you for listening to another great episode of the Galloway Podcast, The COVID Chronicles. What a time it was these last 10 days. And like I said, I'm happy to be moving on and starting my senior year, the tide will roll in just over a month on September 26th, and we'll keep you updated weekly on the Galloway Podcast, leading off to kick off at Missouri this year, just over a month, fired up for that. I want to thank all of our listeners. Reminder, the Galloway Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, as well as SoundCloud. This is the Galloway Podcast, where there's the right way, there's the wrong way, and there's the Galloway.